going to be continuing our series looking in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter number 2. Last week we had the Good Shepherd's Children's Home here with us visiting from uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And, and I enjoyed having Brother Robert, Miss Leanne. And anytime those kids can sing, it's always a blessing. I encourage you, keep praying for them. They have a website you can always look up and see how they're doing, some different things they have going on. I love it when they're here and what they do in their ministry. And uh, just to continue praying for them. And uh, just uh, appreciate them being here uh, with us. As Brother Micah said, we've got a lot of great things going on. Uh, it's, we're up to the week of soccer. Now, you that are new, that may not mean beans to you. But you that have been around here a little bit know what the beginning of soccer means. It means you're poking the sleeping bears, what you're doing. And we're getting ready to start. And uh, we got a big registration day, a big work day. I encourage many of you, if you can, to go out and help Brother Greg. We're trying to get this pavilion. Things looking good. And you say, why do we really need a pavilion? Well, if you've been a part of soccer, there's one great thing. This year with a pavilion, we get restrooms. Now, some of you don't care about that. Some of y'all are going to say amen louder now, and you probably will the whole rest of the service because we've had those porta potty things for the last, I don't know, seven years. And so many of you will like glory to God in the highest. We have that. And so now we have those things. And so we're excited about that. And uh, like I said, if you're willing to help out in any way with soccer or know somebody, we have everything on the website ready to go. We're excited about that. It's always a fun time uh, with that. And we had a good time on our, our marriage retreat, I will say that. We had about 11 couples go over to Augusta. We had a great time there. Uh, couples, I think, came back just as happy as they went. I'm not 100% sure of that, but I think they went pretty happy, came back happy. We had a good time and, and everything. And I always encourage you, if you can, you hear about those things and you can go. We'd love for you to go be a part of that. Uh, but this morning, we're going to continue in the book of Acts, chapter number 2. And uh, I did something last week that I, that I caught on about because I know we had extra things going on. I noticed I wasn't going to get through all of my notes, and I didn't want you to stay here to 4 o'clock. And so that way, we, some of you visiting, like, really, 4 o'clock? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, is that wanted to kind of continue our thought about what we're doing and what we're looking at. So we're in the book of Acts, and we started this series looking at this. The book of Acts is written by a man by the name of Luke. Luke is known as the beloved physician. He was a doctor. In fact, he traveled much with the Apostle Paul. And actually, a lot of people uh, give credit to where it says Paul wrote certain books of the Bible that actually Paul said those things. And a lot of times we believe Luke actually did the writing for him, especially as Paul got uh, older. And so the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. But really, it's the second book of Luke, meaning this. First book of Luke, you get about the birth of Christ that we like to read around Christmas time. Those things, we get a lot of the parables, the miracles of Christ. But when you come to the book of Acts, you get how the Acts of Christ still but through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I love what we've looked at, of course, as we've been talking about uh, the first week, we look at Acts chapter number 1. The whole key to Acts is Acts 1-8. And it kind of, and you read a book or you watch a movie or something, there's always a key, there's always an emphasis, or a main statement, if you will. And Acts 1-8 is that, but ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses of me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And as I said uh, the last two weeks, I tell you, I'm very thankful that those men and women in that day, it's about 120 of them, they were in that upper room. But whenever those 120 that knew the gospel, that they obeyed Acts 1-8, you know why? Because when it says to the ends of the earth, that's us. That's us. This wasn't given to them in Nashville, Tennessee, or in Atlanta, Georgia. This was given to them over in Jerusalem, and, and the gospel began to spread. And so we're here today because of people that were obedient to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And I tell you, just because it happened then, I believe we all should apply it now. 
And so we're going to look at some things here. And, and I kind of joked a little bit that I was nervous about going through Acts 2 because a lot of people will fall into one of two camps when you go Acts 2. They're either really excited about the 13 verses, the first 13, that talk about the, the flaming tongues of fire. And, and those that are scared to death of that passage love the last four verses that talk about unity and those things. But the key of what I want us to really look at in the book of Acts and continue this in Acts chapter 2 is really Peter's sermon. What you have sandwiched kind of in between verses 14 on down to about verse number 41, you get Peter's sermon. It's really the first Christian sermon preached after Christ has ascended. And so we see that. And by the way, this is just a little side note. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God in your life? And you say, what do you mean? Do you remember it had to be uh, about 50, maybe 60 days just prior to this before Peter stands up and delivers this wonderful sermon? Just 50, 60 days earlier, he says, I don't know who Jesus is. I'm not one of them. Even blasphemes, a lot of people think he took God's name in vain or he cursed or whatever he did. Three times he denies him. It's only 60 days later he preaches a sermon that 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Can I tell you, there is more grace in Christ than there ever will be sin in you. There's more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ than there ever will be sin in me. And I'm so thankful for that. I just love that part and I didn't want to omit that. But I want us to start reading here this morning in, in Acts chapter number 2. I'd like to read in verse number 37, if you would, and, and we might not go through all of it today, but I just want to give you some of it here. Acts chapter 2, verse number 37. This is after he has uh, preached the message, after he's preached the sermon. It says, now when they heard this, this being that sermon about the gospel, says in verse 37, they were pricked in their heart. That means they were convicted and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words said he, or did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves for this untoward generation. Verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added to the church about 3,000 souls. Fathers, we come to you this morning. God, we just ask for your blessing upon the reading and teaching of your word. Lord, we know in ourselves, as you say, there dwelleth no good thing. And Lord, I pray you might just take me this morning, God, over these next few moments. Lord, I pray that you would use me. But Lord, before I ask you to use me, I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse me and make me usable. Lord, I pray you, would, through your Holy Spirit, would make me a vessel unto honor that you can use your word. Use me in spite of me. Lord, thank you for everyone that's here today. Lord, uh, we have some visiting with us. We have some that are home folk. We have some from traveling from out of town. But God, it's not a mistake for anyone that's in this room today. They're div divine appointments. And God, I pray through your word today, you might just reveal through your Holy Spirit whatever we need today. Lord, there may be somebody in this room that is in such a desperate strait, Lord, they need, they need encouragement, they need comfort that could come from no human but can only come from Christ. And I pray, Lord, you would give that comfort today. You give guidance in their lives. Father, I do pray for, for us in my life. I know, Lord, that need conviction, that need things pointed out. Lord, I pray through your grace and your love, you will show me what I need to do, Lord, how I need to apply things to my life. And, Lord, for that person today that might even be thinking about just giving up on this whole thing, Lord, I pray that you would show to them not just their faithfulness but your faithfulness to them that we might be like you. Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, when they leave this room, 
May they drop a religion and pick up a relationship with Christ. Thank you for all you do for us. May we make much of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. As we looked at this passage last week, we said the whole idea of Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of what we call spreading the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. What I'm doing this morning, hopefully, is proclaiming the gospel. And that's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to deal with. And, and the idea here is Jesus has been told them, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come. Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And by the way, just, to, just a moment of review to understand that if you're here in the moment you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you. But see, Jesus was speaking in Acts 1-8 about the Holy Spirit coming upon you. That coming upon you is those times this. You are saved. You have Jesus, excuse me, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. But the time that you come clothed with the Holy Spirit, and what that means is this. There are certain times in our walks that God just shows up. That God does something. Maybe he gives you peace when you're really troubled. And maybe he does something in your life to impress upon you to, to do something, to be a blessing to somebody else. Maybe he does something that you look back and say, man, that was just a God thing. Only God could answer a prayer in that way. So when it talks about this Holy Spirit coming upon you, it's meaning that God comes upon you to do something great in your life. Now that leads us to the very scary part to some people in the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. Now, in Acts chapter 2, to give the beginning of uh, verse 1, it talks about they all dwell together in one accord. That means they had unity. By the way, just to throw that out, and I said it last week, is that the Holy Spirit will never come upon and greatly use a church until that church has unity. If they don't dwell together in one accord, they don't dwell together in unity, don't expect the Holy Spirit to show up and do anything because there's divisions and there's schisms and those things. That's why Paul, if you go on in other passages of Scripture, talks so much about the unity of the church and the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. The unity of Christ. But what I want us to see here, it says after they did that, it says that the men and women got up and it says it's cloven tongues of fire above their head. And they started to proclaim the gospel. And it does say something interesting. I want you to understand in verse number 6. It says, now when this was noised abroad and the multitude came together, verse 6, and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Verse 8 says, And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? So let me, let me help you with something here. Like I said, a lot of people are scared of some of these verses. What happens here when it talks about the cloven tongues of fire and these men and women stand up and proclaim the gospel of Christ? Can I tell you something? This is not some heavenly language that no one can understand. It's not some prayer language. It's not the groaning of the Holy Spirit. This was proclaiming the gospel in all the different languages. At this time, if you actually, we're not going to take time to read it, but it gives you an idea uh, down in verses 9 and 10 and 11 of all the different groups of people that were there. And there were people from all walks of life. To give you an idea to understand, it's clear in this passage of Scripture, this is not some gibberish that you would just say. This is not something that no one would understand. This was clearly in your own language, your own tongue, being able to understand. It'd be kind of like this. It'd be kind of like the idea, and I gave the example last week. It'd be kind of like we're here, and the Holy Spirit comes upon me, and I start preaching, and when I preach, I'm preaching in flawless German. I don't know German. I'll just tell you that. I have a sister that lives in Germany. She knows German. I know Sprechen Deutsch and Nein. That's about all I know, okay? That's about all I know. I don't even know what Sprechen Deutsch means. I hope I didn't say something bad there, okay? <laughs> I knew no nine means no, Okay? My sister listens on the podcast. She's probably yelling nine right now. You know, stop talking. But you'd be sitting out there going, I didn't know Phil knew German. When did Phil learn German? 
And if there was someone in the room that was from Germany, New German says, hey, not only is he speaking in German, he doesn't have that even crazy Tennessee accent. He's saying it just as if he has flawless German. That's exactly what happened here. That's what this text is. That's really not debatable because Scripture is pretty clear in verses 6 and 8. This is every person heard in the known language that they were in. So hopefully you understand that, okay? All right, I'm not going after those other verses, but I'm telling you right here, it's pretty clear this was a language that was spoken by mankind. It was not some crazy thing that was brought up or, like I said, some kind of prayer language or groaning of the Holy Spirit, okay? So when you look at this passage of Scripture, and you don't understand it, we started looking at some things last week. And we said when you get to verses number 14 and 15, basically what happens is the, the people that are all gathered around, and they're at like a large festival. Pentecost, by the way, just to give you a review in case you weren't here, Pentecost was this huge festival, kind of like a Mardi Gras-style festival. That makes, immediately makes you think something spiritual, right? And so they're at this festival because Pentecost is, they're celebrating the barley harvest. They just harvested all the barley, and so they're taking a few days to celebrate before they go and sow wheat and do the wheat harvest later. So it's a time they stop to celebrate. And just probably being honest, to give you an idea, of probably there are some things going on there that probably aren't the greatest going on. When these people stood up and started preaching or proclaiming the gospel in their own language, some of them stopped and said, hey, these are just ignorant Galileans. How do they know my language? And even some of them says, man, they're drunk. In verses 14 and 15, I love, because Peter basically stands up and says, hey guys, these people, they're that are proclaiming Christ, they're not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock, okay? I know this festival probably going to get pretty lively in a little bit, he's telling them, but they're not drunk, okay? What they're sharing with you is the glorious gospel of this Jesus Christ who came to earth and died and gave himself so that you might have salvation. And so he starts to explain. He even goes on in verses 16 through 21. He says it's actually this Holy Spirit coming upon them. It's actually fulfillment of the prophet Joel that you read about in the Old Testament. And I love verse 21. When it talks about this, it says, And it shall come to pass that what? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love that verse, but that verse means a little bit more in the context of where it's at. And so he tells them that. And what we looked at last week was this. We started looking at the idea of how the gospel spread. How did the gospel multiply? We looked at number one. We looked at this. And I won't go through all these in detail like I did last time. But number one, we says, how did the gospel spread? Number one, we said this, God meets us where we are. By the way, aren't you glad God meets you where you're at? Aren't you glad God didn't look at you in, in your sinful state and say, you know, once you clean this up and once you clean that up and once you start going to church faithfully and once you start reading your Bible and once you start talking right, then you know what, you can pray to me and I'll hear your prayer and then I might even consider saving you. No, God meets us right where we're at. I ain't saying you gotta know the time. I ain't saying you gotta know the place. But I can tell you where God met me at for salvation. I was an eight-year-old boy, and I mentioned it last week. I was knelt by the foot of my waterbed in Smyrna, Tennessee, after hearing preaching and teaching over Jesus came, Jesus died. But to reject Christ means to invite hell and to spend eternity in hell. And I remember that's where Jesus met me. That's where God met me, and the Holy Spirit convicted me, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But can I tell you, just as a side note, I spent many years, many Doubting my salvation. So if you're here today and I take a second, you doubt whether or not you're in Christ or not, don't think that's unusual. The Bible says to make your calling and election sure, to know that you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you know that when you die, that you're, you're going to heaven. But can I tell you something? 
the reason I know I'm going to heaven now and I've kind of got broke from those doubts is because I finally got to the point in my life where my faith was not in my prayer, my faith was in Jesus. Can I just say this for a There's a lot of people, if you ask them how they know they're going to heaven, well, when I was so-and-so, I prayed a prayer. It's a work. That's an act. The prayer is just saying, save me. The salvation is Jesus, is what it is. I trusted in Christ as an eight-year-old boy. I'm still trusting in Christ as a 41-year-old guy right now. And I'm trusting in Christ to save me. I'm not trusting in something I said, because I'll be honest with you, I can't even tell you word for word what I said. I doubted my salvation so much growing up. You ever done this? You don't have to raise your hand on this. Lord, if I didn't get saved, Lord, if I didn't do it right, Lord, save me right now. You know what I'm really trying to do? I'm still trying to do a work. I'm still trying to say, if I didn't say it just right, if I didn't mean it just right, uh, but I really, really mean it this time, I'm still trusting in myself. And it doesn't last. That's why the doubts come back. But I remember at a certain part of my age, actually, I was in Bible college. And I finally got to point, Jesus, I'm trusting you. I'm not trusting who I am, what I do, what I've said. But I really am scared in my mind that there's a lot of people that are going to go to church all across our world today that never really trusted Christ. They just said some words. They just trusted in the words. Did I, did I say saved right? Did I say forgiveness right? You know what I mean? To truly cr trust Christ with your heart. To really trust Christ with your soul. I encourage you today. You don't need to hear anything else that goes on here. But if you're here without Christ, Jesus came, Jesus loved you. And he's saying, you know, I want to free you from religion. And I want to give you a relationship. And you know what you can do? You can live this life holding on to your religion. And you can enter into eternity without Christ. Or you can hold on to a relationship with Jesus Christ and enter into eternity. And he'll look at you and say, come on in. I hate for Jesus to look at me and me go to church all the day, all the times it's open. It says, depart from me for I never knew you. You knew who I was, but I never knew you had a relationship with you. The soul is too valuable to play with in that. You say, Brother Phil, you're scaring us. No, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to be honest with you. The salvation is too important to not be honest with you. But we said that he met them where they at. And I even went on a little bit saying this as a child growing up. And, and I'll be honest. You want to know a lot about what I believed about God in the Bible? is what mama and daddy believed about God in the Bible. And I remember where God met me as a 16-year-old boy, where mom and dad's faith, which I love, became Phil's faith. You, you with me on that? Some people always have mama and daddy, grandpa's faith. Hey, let's just, this is scary too. Don't have Phil's faith. Don't let your faith rise and fall, come and go based on me and what I do and what I say. Have your faith in God. I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about now your walk. Because here's going to be something I hope never happens, but just might happen because I made the same stuff you are. I might totally fall on my faith spiritually. And if your faith is in Christ to live your life, and your faith's not in me to live your life, your faith's in Christ, you'll keep on going. You'll be heartbroken for me. Hopefully you'll pray for me. Hopefully you'll do what you can to restore me. But you're going to keep on chugging. Why? Because God meets us where we are. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my kids, but right now I think all my kids, for the most part, are following after the faith of, of, of Rachel and myself. Hey, that's why we pray before our meals. That's why we try to love each other the right way. That's why I bring them to church faithfully. I'm trying to do everything I can to saturate their lives with the gospel. But you know what I'm also trying to do right now? I'm trying to teach them how they can have a relationship with God, not just watch Daddy have a relationship with God. A lot of kids graduate high school and leave Christian homes and Christian churches never to return. You know why? Because they knew what a good Christian was supposed to do, but they didn't know how a Christian was supposed to have a relationship with Christ.
They know how to sit up in church. They know how to read their Bible. They know how to pray for the meal. But they've never had a relationship. How do I love God? What are you doing to teach your children how to love God? You say, well, I ain't got any kids. I got grandkids. They're on their own. You know what? And, and I love this teaching that we heard in our marriage retreat. You don't read the phrase grandparent anywhere in Scripture. It's always father and my father's father, my mother, my mother's mother. As long as you keep going, you have a responsibility to invest and to pour into your children, grandchildren, however you go on. Keep pouring into them about the wonderful things of God. So I know it took some time there, and I wasn't supposed to. But anyhow, number one, aren't you glad that God meets us where we're at? Number two, we said this. The reason the gospel spreads is not just because God meets us where we're at, but secondly was this we looked at, and we almost finished it, is that God tells us the truth about ourselves. God tells us the truth about ourselves. If you look in Scripture here, I believe if you look in verse number 23, during Paul's sermon, excuse me, Peter's sermon, he says this to him. Him, being Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God, says this, ye, he's speaking to the congregation that's all partying up here, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Then he goes on to say in verse number 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. Did you see something there? Two different times in this sermon, what did Peter look at these people and say? You crucified Jesus. We know he gave his life. We get that. He said, but you crucified him. You did the act of crucifying. Now, 3,000 people got saved later, so that means there's probably more than that there. I'm pretty sure that all these 3,000 or how many over there didn't have the physical act of the cross of Golgotha nailing it in the hands. Probably, not even, probably half of them weren't even there. So how can Peter stand up and say, you're guilty of crucifying Christ? Same reason I'm guilty of crucifying Christ. Stay with me for a second, but you're also guilty of crucifying Christ. The book of Romans, chapter number 3, if you know the Romans road, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as I joked with last week, and people like to know about the Greek and everything with those words mean, you know what the word all means in Greek? All. That's pretty simple, isn't it? It means everyone. Everyone has sinned and comes short of the glory of God. All of us, because of our sin, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if I can expound on that through his death on the cross, that's the gift. Salvation is the gift of that, that we are all guilty of that. And you say, Brother Phil, I don't really feel like I've done anything wrong. I don't feel like I've done anything necessarily i wasn't there how did i crucify jesus how is my sin responsible for that but over in the book of romans we looked at this the reason that i am guilty the reason that you are guilty the reason these people were guilty of crucifying christ was threefold because in romans chapter number one uh verse number <clears throat> excuse me romans chapter one verse number 25 it says this who changed the truth of god into a lie and worshiped and served the creator more excuse me the creation more than creator can I tell you this morning, the reason that you and I are responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is because we love the creation more than we love the creator. Say, so what do you mean? We love the stuff God allows us to have more than we love God who gives the stuff. Don't believe me? Let your car break down today. But then miss an opportunity to go to church or read your Bible. Which one bothers you more? They feel you're getting personal. That's right. I'm glad he gets very upfront with me. Hey, God, test me with that. 
We can go weeks without reading our Bible. We can go months without going to church. And you know, we don't seem bothered, but let us get behind on a few bills or lose something financially. We're all been out of shape. Because we love the stuff. Because we love the creation more than the creator. I can even go a step further, and this is where I struggle. Can I tell you something? I love my wife and four children, but God's the one that gave them to me. And I better not love them more than I love God. You're saying don't love your wife, love your kids? That's not what I'm saying. But who's the one that gave them to me? So many people today make idols out of their families. You want proof of that? We use our families as excuses why we don't obey God. Oh, I can't go to church today. This one's got a ball game. Oh, I can't do this today because this family's visiting from out of town, and they don't go to church, and that would be awkward for them. Think it's going to be awkward the day they stand before Christ and they're thrown into the lake of fire? They feel you getting personal. Yeah, that's why, because this is important or it's not. It's either true or it's not. It really is. Because we'll let anything, man, we, I'm not saying you don't have a vacation. I ain't saying you go spend some time with family. But it's amazing how often we use the, the Lord's Day for anything but the Lord. And I'm not talking about occasional getting away. I'm talking about we use the Lord's Day for anything but the Lord. Well, I can worship God in the woods. Okay, great, did you? I worship God on the golf course. Great, did you? I can worship God sitting at home with my family. Did you or did you just, did you just Netflix binge the whole time? Did you? I mean, that's great, because it does say in the next part of the verse, it says, and, from and every day and from house to house, they cease not to teach and preach Christ. So they did that. And by the way, I'll just throw this out here just for fun. I've had people say, I don't see anywhere in Scripture you got to go to church Sunday night. I don't see anywhere in Scripture you got to go to church Wednesday night. Do we want to do Acts 2? Stay home. But if you feel like staying home can make you more spiritual, go for it. But prove to me that you can. It's just the culture we live in. They want church every day. They were engaged with God every day. And a lot of times we go to church one time a week and feel good about ourselves. Look what I did for God. I'm so God, glad God tells me the truth about myself. God looks at me and says, compared to them, you might be pretty good. But compared to Christ, you ain't so pretty, Phil. You might even do the right things, but your motives aren't right. And by the way, when, and we looked at it in Sunday school today, this. Someone that loves you enough will tell you the truth about yourself. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this. You've been walking out the door, and you look at your spouse saying, is this, this good? Like, the hair's good? All this is good? You know, I got junk in the teeth. You know, am, am I looking good? Now, if they look and say, yeah, you're great, and you go out the door, and you look like you still got the lines on your face, and you got some green stuff laying there, you're going to go, and you know what you're going to say when they bump in the first person? They go, dude, what is wrong with you today? You're going to look at that spouse and say, why didn't you tell me? Well, I love you, and I didn't want to offend you. They were going to say, love me enough to offend me. Can I tell you something? God loves me enough to offend me. And by the way, I want to tell you as much as I can, I love you enough to offend you. And if I don't, and I just want to tell us all that God is good, God is love, and let's just keep on floating, get somebody else. Get someone else that'll tell the truth. That's what we need. And by the way, don't make it easier on my part, because here's the deal. I have to eat this a lot before I can ever get up and teach it. And by the way, even while I'm teaching, I'm eating it. I tell you, I'm somebody that halfway through a sermon, sometimes I just want to stop and pray for my own righteousness, for my own lack of thereof, just to say, get right with God. Phil, why don't you get this right? But we see that God tells us the truth about ourselves. He tells us the truth about who we are and those things. And then we finally got to thirdly was this. The new, the new material for today is this. Not only does God meet us where we are, 
God tells us the truth about ourselves, but then there's this. The gospel provides freedom from our sin and makes us righteous like Christ, and that's a beautiful thing. Think of that for a moment. The gospel provides freedom from sin and makes us righteous like Christ. You know what's awesome about salvation is that it is, does give us freedom from the penalty of sin, but the gospel can also give us freedom from the power of sin. There's a lot of Christians that are free from dying and going to hell, but they live under the bondage and the prison of that sin in their life that they won't get right and give to God. I do that. You're looking at a guy who does that. I live under the power of sin when he says, I'm here to free you from that. Just submit to me. Just let go of your pride and submit to me, and I'll give you freedom. I'll give you peace. But you know why I don't want the peace and freedom of God? Because I want my sin. I'll just be honest with you. I want my sin. I want my pride. I want my bitterness. I want my addiction. I want whatever it is. I want that more. I love Jesus, but I don't love Jesus more. Colossians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 16 or 18. That in all things he might have the preeminence. You know what that means? Then in all things that Jesus Christ might be your one and only. The one and only in those things. And to understand is that the gospel provides freedom in this. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Let's look in the passage back in Acts chapter number 2, where it says in verse, um, excuse me, verse number 31 through 33, he says, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we were all witnesses, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed for us, which ye now see and hear. You say, okay, Brother Phil, what does that mean? What that means is this. Before Christ, I'm broken. I'm a broken individual. I'm busted. I'm rebellious. I'm prone to wander. I'm wicked. I'm lustful. I'm materialistic. I'm self-centered. By the way, I still struggle with all those things today. You say, well, Phil, I don't struggle with pride. I'm the most humble person I know. Probably got a pride issue there, okay? But do we worship the creator more than the creation? And the gospel leans in on this, and he tells us this because what? He tells us that, you know, what God, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That means the satisfactory payment. That means for what God was going to dump wrath on, the cost that had to be paid to keep that wrath back, Jesus says, I'll take it. He is a satisfactory payment. He endured our physical death. He endured our spiritual death so that we would not have to go through it. And you know what I love about this and these pieces of Scripture here that if you saw and was leading, reading closely in these verses 31 through 33, I see wonderful because in Christ, his victory over hell, get this, becomes our victory over hell. Because of Jesus Christ and the salvation you have, his victories, it goes on to say, that's over death and the grave. Guess what? It's our victory over death and the grave. You, have, you don't have to go through this life fearing death and what comes after that because Christ has already conquered that and given victory over that. And what's scary, a lot of people have heard that all their life and they're like, oh, give me something new, Phil. If you're here and you're a Christian, you know what? You're on your way to heaven just as much today as when you were actually excited about it. Don't get excited about a ball game here in a little bit and not get excited that Jesus still saved you. Don't get excited here in just a little bit whenever you get to get that promotion at work or you make more money or God bless you with something. We sit in church going, Jesus paid it all. 
all to him I owe. I am so glad he's a merciful God. Because if he did all that for me, if I did all that for somebody else and they acted that way to me, if I was God, I'd wipe me off the planet a long time ago. We get over our salvation so easily. You know why? Because we quit letting Christ be our God and we put other stuff there. You want to know what the God of your life is? It's that thing that will break you to nothing or make you more angry than you've ever thought about if it gets touched just a little bit. You ever have like a hurt or a wound or something and you're fine but somebody goes up and pushes on it a little bit and you're like, whoo. I remember uh, not long, well, I guess it's been a while, Grayson was a little kid, little, little kid, and I had broken my hand. And I breaking my hand, it detached the thumb from right here on the bone here. So I had like two nails in here. I had it all wrapped up. And I had to have it for four weeks. And let me tell you, having three kids running around with a bandaged hand, you know, and trying to do everything, man, it was hard. And those nails stuck up. And I remember one time, I think it was Noah. Noah was climbing and playing, and he just barely clipped one of those nails. I was like, oh, I was in tears. I was, you know what I mean? You're on the ground like, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Make this pain go away like that. Can I tell you something? He could hit anything else on this body. It wouldn't bother me. But he hit the thing that was the most sensitive and that I was guarding the most. Can I tell you? God has a way of finding out what the important thing is in your life and putting his hand on it, especially if it's not him. Hey, once again, I'm eating this, okay? Don't get mad at me. I'm just eating this. By the way, you want to talk about a friendly sermon? Peter's sermon was not very friendly. He looked at these people and said, you guys killed Jesus. Not once. He told them twice, you guys killed Jesus. All y'all responsible for it, and 3,000 people get saved. I'm like, that is not a very seeker-friendly sermon, <laughs> if you think about it. And he starts a sermon with them saying, you're a bunch of drunk people. This just sounds like the Holy Spirit has just set the table for that service, doesn't it? Can you imagine having anything like that? But anyhow, I'm sorry, we'll move on with that. But anyhow, I just found that interesting. But like I say, Christ's victory over death and hell is your victory over death and hell. And you ought to be excited about it because as Christ's perfect obedience, get this, becomes our perfect righteousness. Christ's perfect obedience becomes our perfect righteousness. And I know I've read this first, if you've been around here long, probably a hundred times in the, in the five, I guess, next, next Sunday, six years I've been here. Is 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If you want to memorize one verse for the rest of the year, that'll help you with your, with your joy of your salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 ought to be pretty high on that list. For he hath, God hath made him, Jesus, to be us. Sin. I heard someone say this one time, and I've shared it before. Jesus had to stand before God as Barabbas so that Barabbas could stand before God as Jesus. Drink that in for a moment. Jesus had to stand before his father as complete sin and filth so that us that were born in sin could stand before, stand before God as pure and clean. We are made the righteousness of God. And I tell you, that's part of the gospel. The gospel is not just a forgiveness of sins. It's not just a freedom, but it's making us righteous. And, and then the last point, you know, probably amazed. I said the last point, right? Number four is this. You're like, I ain't heard it yet, Phil. All right. Another reason why the spreading of the gospel or why the gospel multiplied, number four is this. The gospel demands a response. Now I'm going to lean in here for a moment, okay? 
The gospel demands a response. Now, remember what we're talking about here is how the gospel works. Now, like I said, listen to me. I'm going to lean in a little heavy right here, and I think it's important that I do, is that anytime the gospel is proclaimed, we must respond. We must respond. And can I tell you something? No response is still a response. If your spouse comes up to you and says, hey, will you take out the trash? And you just sit there and keep watching Barney Fife or whatever you are watching on the television and don't say a word. The next day goes and comes. <laughs> Why are you mad? I didn't say no. Now, I didn't say yes. I didn't say no. No response was still a response, right? I'll go home here in a little bit. Hopefully have a cool little Sunday afternoon with the kids. And we're doing and we get through eating. I say, all right, guys, I want you to, to take the plates, clear the plates, you know, put the excess stuff in the trash can and put your dishes in the sink, okay? Go do that. Daddy will be right back. I got to run to the store. And I come back and the kids are gone and all the plates are still there. Now, they didn't say yes or no. Let me ask you a question. They obey or not? No. Let me ask you a question this. Let's say I come home and they're all sitting around having a Bible study and praying for all the missionaries and children of the world. But all the plates are still there an hour later. Did they obey, yes or no? No. Now, but look what we were doing, Daddy. We just got through praying for you and for Mama. We prayed for Brother Johnny. We prayed for Mr. Jamal. I mean, we prayed for all these people. We, we prayed for all these people. I'm going to say, that's wonderful. I appreciate you sacrificing of your time. Man, if you go to 1 Samuel, remember what Samuel said when Saul disobeyed? Remember Saul was told to, to kill everything that he fought against, don't bring anything back, and he brought things back. He brought some of the sheep back, the goats back. He brought the king uh, back with him. And remember he said, I did everything that you told me to do. And, then, and Samuel's like, then why do I hear these sheep going, man? And why do I see the king right here? And listen to this. This is very important about understanding, reacting, and responding to the gospel. Samuel looks at him and says, to obey is better than to sacrifice. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Woo, I say witchcraft. I think everybody in this room is like, okay, Phil, that's easy. We don't even want to talk about that word, much less really say it. But God puts on the same level as something that's satanic as witchcraft. He says, rebelling and not responding to what I'm telling you to do. Boy, I don't want to eat that, do you? I don't. So can I tell you, a lot of us feel really good coming and sitting in church and leaving unchanged and not living any closer to God and not living lives that desire to please God and we feel like we're good. Can I tell you, you're fooling yourself. A whole lot of people play church. A whole lot of people play Christian. A whole lot of people play whatever it is that they're going to do. A lot of people do that. And I love how it says here in verse 37, the gospel was presented and it says in verse number 37, they looked at them and said what? Men and brethren, what shall we do? You ever have somebody tell you about something coming? Maybe, hey, these families is coming in, man, all 40 of them, they're coming to your house tomorrow. And you know what you look and say, okay, what do, what do I need to do? It's the same thing as someone says, hey, there's someone coming to your house, they're going to break into your house. There's a threat. There's something coming that's not bad. I don't know, 40 people coming to your house may be bad. And then there may be this threat of something coming to attack. You know what you're going to say? Your response for both things, the warning and the encouragement of what's coming, you're going to say, what do I need to do to prepare for when that comes? 
Can I encourage you every time you open this Bible, any day of the week that you have your devotion, and any time you sit in a Sunday school class or in a church service, your heart and mindset need to be, what God do you want me to do? Not what I want you to do. Not what I want you to do. Did you hear that? I'm, not what I want you to do. Because if you're doing what I want you to do, it won't last. Because you'll find some fault in me, and that won't take you long. But if it's God, what do you want me to do? That should be our response every time. Did you come this morning saying, God, I want you to show me how you want me to take this. And God, I want you to show me how you want me to live differently when I walk in. I dare say very few people walk into a church service, open their Bibles to read it on a Tuesday morning, and say, God, I want you to show me what you want me to do when I close this and leave. But we read the Bible, check it off in our schedule, and we don't live changed lives, and we think we're great. The gospel demands a response. It demands it. Uh, I believe, and make sure I get this right to give a little understanding, the Puritans would say it this way. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice will harden the clay. You say, what do you mean by that? What, what do you mean by that? Let, let me just kind of explain it this way. Is that when the gospel is presented, when the Bible is taught, when the word is proclaimed, whether it's, whether it's something you hear on the radio, whether you hear it in here, whether you read your Bible, whatever it is, when that is proclaimed, we must respond because, because really that's something that I'm really concerned about because when it's given, the salvation is given or how to live a Christian life is given uh, and we got to think to ourselves, okay, now, now what do I need to work on? Okay, how, how, do I, how do I need to apply this to my life? Okay, God, what is it you want me to do? You know what you're doing? You're taking steps to the softening of your heart. But when you come Sunday after Sunday and come as you are and leave as you are and you just feel good because you came to church, you are actively taking steps to the hardening of your heart to God. It is very, very possible and very, very common to come to church and leave with your heart more hardened than it was when you walked in. You know why? Because we don't say, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to change? Who do you want me to be? It's very possible to do that. Can I tell you, there's going to be a lot of people, a lot of people, they're going to go to church multiple years of their life, and each Sunday, their heart's going to get harder. You know why? Because they're going to hear the truth and not respond in a way that's pleasing to God, to softening of their heart. They respond in a way or with no response, which is still a hardening of their heart to the things of God. And I close with this. It is your step, it is your choice, excuse me, what step you take today with your heart. Every person in this room is going, when they leave this room, is going to take a step. You're either going to step to the ongoing softening of your heart so God can do things in your life and speak to you as a believer. You might be here and you don't know the Lord is your Savior, and you're feeling right now that there's something in your life missing. But can I tell you what that is missing? There's a Savior that wants to forgive you of your sins, set you free of your sins, and to restore a relationship of love with you and that you might have life eternal. And you may, even this day, put your faith and trust in Christ and the ongoing softening of your heart. But you could be here today as an unbeliever and say, yeah, I hear that, that sounds good, but that's not for me. Be careful because you're making it harder on you the next time. You're hardening your heart for the next time. I heard a phrase, and I know I like to say it around here a lot, but it's true. Many who plan to seek God at the 11th hour die at 1030. 
You know why? You say, what's the big deal with that? Because we really don't plan on seeking God. We really don't plan to come to Christ. And, and if I can may say this, and I believe you can take it through Scripture, the only reason if you're here today and you know the Lord's your Savior is not because you chose Christ. It's because the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin and God came to you and says, come unto me. All you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I hear people say all the time, I'll, I'll, I'll get saved later. You, you, don't get, you don't trust Christ unless you feel like you need to. And you want to know who tells me that I need to? The Holy Spirit. Because I'm depraved. I am broken. I am selfish. I am self-centered. And I feel like I'm doing just a fine job without God. But that Holy Spirit says, no, no, no. Trust Christ. Apart from the Holy Spirit, I would never trust Christ. So let me give you a warning. If you're here today and don't know the Lord's your Savior, say, oh, maybe I'll jump on that next time. You may live 100 more years and the Holy Spirit never come to you the next time. I didn't say you die. You may live 100 years and there may not be another time. And you know what that means? You'll just live your life being God. But you'll enter into eternity without him. But I tell you what I'm also scared of. I think there's many a Christian that possibly is even sitting in this room this morning. And you're going to hear this and you're kind of going to like it. But you've probably heard it before. And you know what you're going to do? Instead of saying, God, what do you want me to do? God, okay, God, I got pride in this issue. Okay, God, I'm arrogant in this issue. Okay, God, I, I'm sinning in this issue. And what we'll do is we'll take conviction and make that as valuable as change. Can I tell you, conviction is not change. Conviction tells you there needs to be a change. And I mentioned it in Sunday school, and those who are in Sunday school, forgive me. Just because you walk out of here feeling like someone stepped on your toes does not mean you live a changed life. You ever walk out and say, man, I feel good. I've been to church. He stepped on my toes. But you know what's really going to tell the difference is what you do on Monday. What you do on Monday and Tuesday and every other day that ends with day. But no response is still a step in the direction of hardening your heart to God. And you can do that as a believer just as you can do it as a lost person. That's why we come to church and we're bored. Forgive me. That's why we come to church and we're counting the time. You know why? Because it's infringing on what really is our God. What really is our God. Let's stand together if you would. Father, thank you for this.